I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I have developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. In today's reading, we'll be looking at 2 Peter. 2 Peter was written shortly after 1 Peter, that would be between 62 to 64 AD. Getting right into chapter 1, we find the benchmarks of committed Christian living in verses 1 through 4. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith, with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Verse 1 contains an interesting comparative phrase regarding the quality of one's salvation. So here's Peter as an apostle of Jesus Christ declaring regarding our salvation that his readers have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and of our Savior Jesus Christ. The phrase like precious there comes from a Greek adjective which means equally precious, a reference to the fact that their salvation in Jesus Christ and our salvation is in no way inferior to his very own as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Every verb used in verses 2 through 4 is in either the Greek aorist or perfect tense, both tenses indicating the completed action of salvation. So here's what a believer gets at the point of salvation in Jesus Christ. We see in verse 2, he gets the inclusion of grace and peace. In verse 3, the awarding of all those things that pertain to life and godliness. Verse 3, the calling to glory and virtue. Also, verse 3, the awarding of exceeding great and precious promises. In verse 4, and again in verse 4, the inclusion as partakers of the divine nature. Because of all this, Believers have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We see that at the end of verse 4. So, let me state it again clearly. Because of the tenses of these verbs, all of these items accompanied our salvation experience when we were saved. Now, notice particularly verse 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. This divine nature is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in every believer's life. Now continuing with verse 5. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness. And godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity, for if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. Here we see the qualities of victorious Christian living in verses 5 through 8. We already know from Paul's writings, especially to the Galatians, that these attributes are achieved through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, as seen in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25. But let's take particular note of the phrase he uses in verse 5, where he says, add to your faith. It's interesting that the compound Greek word for add there is epikorgeo, which literally means to super add or add upon. In other words, it means to add to that which is already there. This particular word is used just five times in the New Testament, twice by Peter here in verse 11. In verse 11, it's translated minister. So while Peter encourages believers to add these qualities, Paul explains the mechanics of doing so in his explanation of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 25. So let's take a look at the uh, attributes Peter is admonishing his readers to demonstrate. Those are virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. Now, you'll notice that the... This list right here very closely resembles that which you find Paul talking about in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 with the fruit of the Spirit. And talk about the joy of Christian living. Look at verse 8. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, then verses 5 through 7 flow naturally, and the joy of verse 8 is naturally realized. I fully recognize that Peter doesn't actually make reference per se to the Holy Spirit here. However, Paul clearly defines the believer's condition of verse 8 to have been achieved through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we put the two passages together, it's obvious that Peter is talking about the qualities that flow forth from a believer as a result of the indwelling power and leadership of the Holy Spirit. But you ask, what about the immature believer? I mean, the one who is not advanced in the faith at all. Well, there he is in verse 9. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. There is no question that Peter is talking about a saved person here because he has been purged from his old sins. However, the subject is obviously not happy or fulfilled in his Christian life as he tries to live it without the fullness of the Holy Spirit working within. Understand this, all believers are indwelled by the Holy Spirit according to 1 Corinthians 12.13, but not all believers are filled by the Holy Spirit as we see from Galatians 5.16-25. Of course, God wants all believers to walk in the fullness of the power of the Holy Spirit all the time. All right, now let's move to the verse that some have incorrectly used to indicate that the believer may lose his salvation. By the way, a believer cannot lose his salvation. Verse 10 says, though, Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. Verses 5 through 8 are the symptoms of spirit-led living and make our calling and election sure. 
The Greek word used there actually means stable. This is the opposite of the last word used in that sentence, which is fall. The Greek word for fall means stumble. The word fall here is not to be taken as losing one's salvation. This verse simply means that when we are controlled by the Holy Spirit, as in verses 5 through 8, we demonstrate a stability in our Christian walk unlike the immature Christians who stumble. When Peter was admonishing his readers to add the attributes of verses 5 through 7, he used the Greek word which means to super add. Here the word is used again in verse 11, but this time the King James Version translates it minister. It appears to be a play on words by Peter in using the same word twice here and verse 5. So, when your life reflects the attributes of verses 5 through 7, then the appearance of Jesus Christ will have special super-added significance attached to it. In other words, when you prepare for the appearance of Jesus Christ, the rapture, that appearance will hold superabundance for you when it takes place. In verses 12 and 13, Peter emphasizes his commitment to keeping the message of a spirit-led service before his readers. He saw his mission, as he describes in verse 13, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. The Greek word for stir up there means literally to fully awaken. Let's face it, some believers need a wake-up call from time to time to help them recognize or remember their responsibility to live their lives in a way that glorifies our Lord. Peter anticipates his death in verses 14 and 15, but emphasizes that he wants his message of Christian living to endure past his death. We find a reference to the transfiguration in Peter's words in verses 16 to 21 of chapter 1. Verse 16, We have not followed cunningly devised fables, but we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Peter uses two events here to validate the Messiahship of Jesus Christ in verses 16 through 18. The supernatural occurrences at his baptism, being the first one, and the second being the transfiguration. Now, both of these can be seen in at BibleTrack.org on uh, the readings for Matthew 3, 13 through 17, which is the same as Mark 1, 9 through 11, and Luke 3, 21 and 22. Go to those passages and you'll see them all three. Uh, they're listed in parallel. That's the first, the baptism of Jesus. The second being the transfiguration. He references that in verse 18. You find the transfiguration in, again, three parallel passages that are listed side by side. The one including Matthew 17, verses 1 through 9, Mark 9, verses 2 through 10, and Luke 9, verses 28 through 36. Peter points out that he was an eyewitness of the glory of Christ in Matthew 17 when Christ appeared with Moses and Elijah at the transfiguration. 
Then in verse 19, Peter further establishes the Messiahship of Jesus with a prophecy. The prophecies of the Old Testament are further validated because the transfiguration is a preview of their fulfillment. Peter links this transfiguration experience with the Old Testament prophecy and then explains the supernatural aspect of Scripture in verses 20 and 21 when he says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. In other words, Scripture is not given by man's intellect, meaning, or expressed, should I say, not of any private interpretation, but it comes from God. When he states, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. These two facts make Christ through Scripture uniquely worthy of our honor. That brings us to 2 Peter chapter 2. God will take care of the righteous and the false prophets we find in this passage. Verse 1. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through the covetousness they shall with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. Here's a chapter with some rather sobering warnings to those who resist the truth and preach false doctrine. False doctrine is false doctrine. It's seated in wickedness. False teachers many times have elements of truth all through their teaching. But false doctrine, keep in mind, is false doctrine. Beware of those who do not embrace the entire doctrine of righteousness in their teaching. Disregard their eloquence or rationale. Always go for 100% truth. Now let's deal with the doctrinal implications of this passage with regard to the state of salvation for those false teachers. It's unrealistic to read this chapter and conclude anything other than these false teachers are headed for hell. Peter goes out of his way with his terminology and examples to make this abundantly clear. Now for the problem. What then does verse 1 mean when it says, even denying the Lord that bought them? I mean, if you bought, aren't you saved? Well, in case you're wondering, you won't get any help from knowing the Greek verb for bought. Um, here it's agorazo. It simply means to buy. Quite a lot has been written on this verse in way of explanation. Much of what has been written sounds like double talk, giving so much irrelevant information that one may not realize the real issue is not really being satisfied. So let's try to cut through the double talk and come to some viable conclusion about what this verse means. Let me give you a couple of positions held by credible Bible teachers on this verse and give you an opportunity to decide for yourself. Position number one says that these false teachers understand terminology and claim to have been bought by Jesus Christ, though in fact they are unregenerate. So Peter is just citing the claim that they have been bought as in redeemed by Christ by his death on the cross. The second position is this, everyone who comes into this world is bought, but until they receive Christ as their personal Savior, it is not appropriated for them. This position states that bought is not necessarily saved. In other words, all saved people are bought, but not all bought people are saved. 
So regarding the second position here, give some thought to this. Romans 5, 8 says, But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then there's 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, which says, My little children, these things write I unto that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And here's what I want you to see. It says in verse 2, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It is certainly plausible to assume that Peter may have been writing in these terms in reference to false teachers being bought, though having never appropriated salvation for themselves by trusting Jesus Christ as personal Savior. You may find it helpful to know the underlying Greek noun used four times in these three verses. Apolio. The King James Version translated as damnable and destruction in verse 1. In verse 2, it is translated as pernicious ways. In verse 3, it is translated damnation. Peter used the same exact word in all four instances. In addition to these four renderings, Peter uses the exact same Greek word in chapter 3, and there it's translated perdition. In verse 7, and then we find it again in verse 16, there it is translated destruction. So altogether, apolia is used 20 times in the New Testament. One more significant occurrence is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. That verse says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. That son of perdition right there is a reference to the beast of Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10, the man that we typically refer to as the Antichrist. Make no mistake about it, verses 4 through 22 clearly establish that these subjects are wicked, unregenerate people. Let's read. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved into judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that afterwards should live ungodly, and delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversations of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them, and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the ungodly out of temptations, and to reserve the unjust into the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption." And shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Having eyes full of adultery, and cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. And heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, which have forgotten the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Basor who love the wages of unrighteousness, 
but was rebuked for his iniquity. The dumb ass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds that are carried with a tempest, to whom the mist of the darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh. Through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. So in light of the wording of verses 1 through 3, it seems futile to try to make a case that eternal damnation for these false teachers is not the intended meaning here. Peter gives several examples of God's judgment on wickedness in verses 4 through 19 to reinforce his point. Verses 20 to 22 require some explanation in this context as well, saved people or not. Well, we've already established that they're not saved, these false teachers, but verse 20 indicates that uh, they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, I ask, isn't that saved? Well, no. Many people have the knowledge and move towards salvation, but never actually get saved. These false teachers were obviously people who had convincingly positioned themselves where it appeared they were following Christ, but not really, never really got saved. The parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, Mark 4, Luke 8, all three parallel passages, illustrates this condition exactly. In that parable by Jesus, only the fourth category of seed recipients actually responded. The first three received knowledge, but declined. So is the case with these false teachers. In verses 4 through 6, Peter gives three Old Testament examples of the destruction of wickedness. He talks about the angels that sin in verse 4. That perhaps is a reference to the angels seen in Revelation 12.4. portion of that chapter is historical. Perhaps it's a reference to Genesis chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. Don't know for sure. And then he talks about the flood upon the world of the ungodly, verse 5. Of course, that's a reference to Genesis 6, uh, 8 through seven twenty-four. And then finally, the turning of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, seen in verse 6. That's obviously a reference to Genesis chapter 19, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. The deliverance of Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah is seen in verses 7 through 9 as an example of how Peter expects to see his readers delivered from these false teachers. The wording of those three verses leaves no doubt that Peter considered these false teachers to be unregenerate. Verse 10 needs a little bit of explanation, though, but says, But chiefly them that walk after the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. The uh, Greek word there for government is kuriotes, which is only used four times in the New Testament. The other three times is translated dominion in the King James Version. When Paul uses the word in Ephesians 1.21 and Colossians 1.16, he 
He uses it in the context of referring to supernatural authority. It seems best to understand it in that context here as well. Furthermore, the word dignities comes from the Greek word doxa, which is frequently used in the New Testament and almost always translated glory. Translating it as dignities in the King James Version only occurs here in Jude verse 8. So the wording of verse 10 doesn't really reflect their resistance against human government, but rather their resistance against supernatural powers. That understanding is supported by verse 11 where it is said that the angels, these supernatural powers, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. The moral shortcomings of these false teachers are certainly identified in verses 12 through 14 just prior to being compared to Balaam in verses 15 and 16. That reference gives us a good bit of insight regarding these false teachers. Balaam, if you will recall, was a false pagan prophet, although he did actually get a word of prophecy from the one true God. But then again, so did his donkey. We start reading about him in Numbers chapter 22, but here's the bottom line on Balaam. Balaam was an enemy of God and of Israel who just happened to get a word from God. In verse 17, these false teachers are compared to empty wells and storms without rainfall. In other words, they often promise but don't deliver spiritual nourishment. We see in verses 18 to 22 that their motivations are altogether corrupt. Regarding the issue of the authenticity of their faith in these verses, Peter wraps these false teacher comments up with an Old Testament proverbial quote. That's Proverbs 26:11, And here it is. As a dog returneth to his vomit, so a fool returneth to his folly. This puts the lid on the case of these false teachers. They are unregenerate, evil people who verbalize just enough truth to doctrinally snag the uninformed. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we find in the first nine verses, Peter addresses the issue of what's taking so long. Verse 1, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostle, the Lord, and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last day scoffers walking after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that was then being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved into fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord does not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Does it seem like a, a long time, I mean a long time, for the promise of the return of Jesus Christ? Well, Peter addresses this issue in verses 1 through 6 when he compares our waiting for the return of Jesus to that of the long wait for the judgment of God against the inhabitants of the earth prior to the flood. He indicates in verses 3 and 4 that there will be those who will prompt others to question the promises of God, just as in Noah's day. 
In that passage, Noah appears to have preached righteousness for 120 years prior to the flood, but to no avail. We see that in Genesis chapter 6, verses 3 through 7. So Peter concludes this comparison in verse 7 when he says, But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. In other words, just hang on. It's coming. And really, the wait isn't that long after all. He says in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8, But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. God has a timetable. We get impatient, but to him everything is right on schedule. Perhaps Peter was thinking of Psalms chapter 90, verse 4, when he made that quotation, For a thousand years in thy sight are but as a yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Some have used verse 8 here as a consistent timetable formula. I'm not comfortable with the notion that one day with God always means 1,000 years with man. That formula has been used in a variety of prophetic applications and even utilized as an innovative look at the six days of creation. The emphasis for Peter here is that God's definition of a long time is not necessarily our definition of a long time. I really don't feel comfortable making it mean anything beyond that simple fact. Verse 9 has created a dilemma for some where it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise to some men count slackness, but his long-suffering to us were not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. For those who firmly teach that God has determined that some people who are born into this world are willed to be lost without hope of salvation, this verse is quite difficult for them to explain. Now, their view is that saved people only are being called upon to repentance in this verse. In view of the Noahic flood analogy, verses 5 and 6, that position simply doesn't make sense. This verse seems instead to indicate that God is allowing time, lots of time, for the salvation of more people prior to his return because he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If you got some questions about the issue of foreknowledge, election, and predestination, check my notes on Bible track on Romans chapter 9 where I deal as thoroughly with it as I know how. Then we find that sometimes a day is not really a day at all. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting into the coming of the day of God? wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So verse 10 begins by saying this, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So what day exactly is that day that he's talking about? Is he talking about the rapture, the day that happens, or the day the second coming of Christ happens, or the day the beginning of the new earth and the new heaven take place? What's he talking about? Well, the word day here is undoubtedly used figuratively like we use it ourselves. You know, we say sometimes like, well, back in my day, or there's coming a day. Paul used the word similarly 
in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. As a matter of fact, we know from the book of Revelation that the events of 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13 may be a description of those which take place during the last few weeks of the tribulation during the vile judgments of Revelation chapter 15. Perhaps, however, Peter is making reference to the occasion detailed in Revelation 21.1, which follows immediately upon the heels of the millennium when the earth is completely destroyed at once and a new earth is created. As a matter of fact, the wording of verse 13 matches exactly the provisions of the new heaven and the new earth of Revelation chapter 21. By the way, nobody knows when a thief is coming. It is reserved for our future as a big old surprise. That being the case, verse 11 encourages us to be in pursuit of godliness at all times. In the new heaven and the new earth, only righteousness will prevail. We see that in verse 13. And finally, Peter says in the last five verses, stand strong, beginning with verse 14. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking of them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. And finally, Peter says, stay away from those teachers with that false teaching. Don't let them get you off track, verse 14. Peter makes a reference to Paul's writings in verses 15 and 16 and mentions the false teachers again who reject this sound teaching. Don't listen to those false teachers, verse 17. They'll chisel away at your stability, your steadfastness in the Lord. The opposite of this steadfastness is the confusion that results in the destruction of the unlearned and unstable. These are references in verse 17 as those that are teaching the error of the wicked. The King James Version translates the Greek verb streblao as rest in verse 16. However, the word actually means to twist or pervert. These are references to the same false teachers of chapter 2. They are wicked and bound for destruction. So here's the lesson. Stick with the unadulterated word of God. Here's the key to victorious Christian living in verse 18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Faith Bible Church, Paul Walker.